I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey, witches! Marcel here, dropping in ahead of this great episode to tell you that we are just over 100 patrons away from reaching our goal of 1,000 monthly supporters. If we hit that goal before May 20th, we're unlocking a live Zoom Witch Please Tell Me Q&A for all our patrons. Hannah's birthday is May 25th, and I know for a fact that this is her very dearest birthday wish. Reaching 1,000 supporters would be a financial game-changer for us. It would mean more stability for our team, more funds to create perks, and it would get me and Hannah a little bit closer to earning a living wage for our work on the show. You can become a Patreon supporter at any tier for more perks and bonus content like Q&As, interviews, behind-the-scenes action, and unedited archived episodes. Not to mention sweet merch like mugs and stickers. If you're already a Patreon supporter, thank you so much. You can still help us out by spreading the word. If 10% of our Patreon supporters got one or more friends to support the show, we'd easily hit our goal. Just head over to patreon.com slash ohwhichplease for more info. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, since we are about to talk about something that is both fake and sinister, I want to start us off by talking about something that is both real and also (gasps) good, which is the opposite of sinister in the sorting chat. Okay, good. Tell me what it is. I just really want to tell you about what I've been doing over the past two weeks. (laughs) A very specific thing, though. Okay. All right. So I am moving out of my condo at the end of April, which is so soon. A couple of days from now. It's a couple of days, basically. (laughs) 
Uh, because I'm getting renovations done, which is very, very exciting, but they're quite substantial, so I have to not be here while they are happening. So I'm moving into a sublet. And rather than doing the easy but expensive thing of just having movers come and just put all of my stuff Mm -hmm. in a place for the four months, I instead have been working with a friend who is, like, let's say, you know, a non-professional organizational consultant. (laughs) Which is to say, she's a like local musician and podcaster who is also just a really organized human being. And she has been coming over and like, you know, Marie Kondoing my apartment with me, except it's not Marie Kondoing, it's Jessica Delilah now, because that is the person who has been doing it with me. But we have gone through every paper I own, like every individual piece of paper every weird box that had a bunch of shit that i had like just shoved yeah like everything that i was like i don't know what to do with this and just put it in the closet and never thought about it again i understand that impulse i too do those things i love to take a thing i don't know how to deal with and put it in a closet (laughs) we found three separate laptop boxes which means that i have moved multiple times with the old packaging from old laptops because I didn't I didn't know what to I didn't know what to do with them and so I just I just kept them wait you weren't using them to store things no oh hannah no 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 okay 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 here is the pack rats lesson <laughs> okay i'm a hoarder at heart Okay, you got to use those weird things that have spaces in them to put the smaller things you don't know what to deal with. And like, yeah, we, oh my God, Trevor has this, this old Apple box for a wired mouse. So that's how old it is. It was a wired mouse. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the box itself is made out of paper that's like cardboard paper and and it's white and blue with the old old. apple font and it says apple on it it's not just a picture of an apple so it's very old and i think it says something he has written in sharpie on it sony because (laughs) at one point there was something there was a sony something in it and it has moved with him and then us for like over a decade and i think it currently holds (laughs) (laughs) Post-its. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Jessica's new rule for me is that I'm not allowed to store anything in opaque containers. Ah, that's a good rule. Everything has to be stored in clear containers so that I can see what's in there and like remember that those things exist because it does appear that I have some issues with object permanence um, that we sort of just put things in a closet <laughs> and then... Forget that they ever that they ever existed. And yes, everybody, I know that probably means I have ADHD. I don't care. <laughs> it's fine. But the process has been one so cathartic. Just like mm-hmm. she has removed three carloads of stuff. What? So much stuff. Hannah, you could fit three carloads of things in your apartment to begin with? I mean, in addition to the things I want to keep. Like, like just the density of papers, Marcel. <laughs> if I could only express to you the sheer quantity of papers. 
<laughs> my apartment has too much closet space, but we're solving this problem with our new organizational systems. And also I'm having the contractor remove one of the closets. All right. Okay. <laughs> anyway. I'm excited for you, Hannah. This is this is thrilling. Marcel, do you have a real and good thing that you want to talk about? I do. I do. I have a very real, very good thing, uh, which is my... It's <laughs> just my almost eight-month-old baby who is so real and so good, but also so disruptive and on my lap right now. And so, <laughs> listeners, you are going to hear a lot of baby in this episode. And I know some of you love that. And I know some of you don't like that and haven't said anything about it because... Because <laughs> you know that we'll, we'll cancel you if you do. Yeah. <laughs> but we just we just want you to know that this is happening. <laughs> It's real. It's good. And it's happening. And it's happening. It's going to be so, so disruptive. Sorry, coach. Sorry, coach. Sorry, coach. We've been tackling some pretty heavy topics lately, so we're going to keep things playful in today's revision. But before we can play our little game, Marcel, we need to do some actual, you know, revision. Okay, well, maybe we should start with the prison industrial complex, since that ties into the concept of security. So back in Book 3, Episode 6, our guest, Mercedes Eng, walked us through the carceral logics of the wizarding world, which is rooted in the premise that imprisonment is a necessary evil and that some people are dangerous and must be locked away for the greater good. Baked into that understanding of the prison system is an ideology that some people are guilty and some are innocent, and the accompanying discourse around criminality and incarceration. And of course, we looked at how the notion of guilt attaches to some people more easily than others, particularly Black and Indigenous people, who make up a disproportionate and a staggering percentage of the prison population in North America. So when we're talking about necessary evils and the greater good, it's also useful to think about what exactly it is we think we're protecting. So in Book 4, Episode 2, we talked about the concept of the nation-state and how Benedict Anderson theorized nations as imagined communities that are imagined as being limited, sovereign, and a community. It's right there. Mm -hmm. It's right there in the name. <laughs> mm -hmm. And implicitly that need to be protected to maintain that sovereignty. So the imaginative force of the nation is so powerful that we not only believe it's real, but also that we need to do things to protect it. You can't have a homeland security if you have no concept of a homeland. Oh, so true. But also, you said we we're going to keep it playful? I know, and that was all extremely grim. But, Marcel, it's time to play Cloaks or Hoax. Cloaks are hoax. I love it. Yeah, this is a blatant ripoff of Goth or Noth. Shout out to our faculty club tier Patreon supporters for helping me brainstorm game names. <laughs> we came up with a lot of very silly, very silly rhymes. Oh, good. 
<laughs> so what I want to do is go through the security measures that we mm-hmm. see Rufus Scrimgeour introduce into the Wizarding World in this book. Oh my gosh. Okay. And I want to talk about whether those are actually useful security cloaks. Okay. Or just a front to make people feel better, hoax. All right. I love this. Okay. All right. What you got? All right. I'm going to start with the very first ones that we encounter, which is the list of tips that are included in the ministry pamphlet on staying safe from Death Eaters. So first tip, don't leave the house alone. Cloak. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Travel in groups. Useful. Yeah. The buddy system. The buddy system. Everybody loves a buddy system. Mm-hmm. Second, don't go outside after dark. I'm going to say hoax. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're all afraid of the dark, but <laughs> my understanding is that the dark isn't actually more dangerous than the day. I mean, a little curious, also considering that wizards can magically make light. And darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I mean, curfews are a popular security measure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about how effective they are at actually reducing risk. Right, because it depends on who is curfewed, right? Absolutely. Okay. Here is, I mean, this is probably my personal favorite. Agree on security questions with close friends and family so that you can tell if they're, you know, actually them. Cloaks or hoax? Oh, these are, okay, these are actually a lot harder than I thought they would be. Because <laughs> I want to, I, I, I also want to say, like, totally, totally a hoax, right? In the way that we see it happening in the book could also be really useful because sometimes scammers, like, call people and are like, your son has been arrested and you need to send bail via iTunes gift cards. And people are like, oh my God, okay. You know? Yeah. I mean, security questions are a really popular form of digital security. Mm-hmm. Are they good? Are they effective? Sometimes. Yes. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I also have no idea, Marcel. It's such, <laughs> it's such a good reminder that we are just completely used to doing things that we are told are for our security that we absolutely have like no understanding of how effective or valuable those things are like yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely everybody constantly wants me to tell them my mother's maiden name and the year that (laughs) i graduated high school both of which are wildly googleable pieces of information about me like truly incredibly easy to find Okay, okay, next, next. (laughs) What you got next? Okay, contact the magical law enforcement squad if someone is acting strange, aka if you see something, say something. This is total hoax, because how do you know that the people on the magical law enforcement squad are not Death Eaters? And what is strange? We are talking about wizards. (laughs) 100%. What is strange behavior for wizards? Yep, absolutely. Plus, as we're going to see, that's pretty much just used to imprison people for show. But don't worry, we're going to get to that one. Oh, goody. Do not enter a building with the dark mark above it. (laughs) Cloaks or hoax? I want to say that that's a cloak, except that if the dark mark is on it, 
maybe the bad things already happened, so you can go in now? (laughs) You know? What place is more dangerous than a place that hasn't yet been hit by the Death Eaters, you know? That's some real Mad-Eye Moody thinking. (laughs) I only go into buildings with the dark mark above them. I don't know about you, Hannah. (laughs) It's the only time you know you're safe. The only safe building's a building that's already burned down. That can't possibly be the case. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I think that's just common sense. I would say I would say that's a that's a cloak. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Okay. Report sightings of inferi to the ministry. If you see a zombie, tell the government. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say hoax. What the fuck are they gonna do? <laughs> Great. Incredible. What are they do? Incredible. <laughs> Installing an aura. In the prime minister's office, cloaks are hoax. Cloak. Yeah, I mean, it's probably going to be able to keep the prime minister safer from Death Eaters than, say, people who don't know what magic is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. So we have obviously, we have moved beyond the pamphlet at this point. The Office for the Detection and Confiscation of Counterfeit Defensive Spells and Protective Objects i.e. the new office that Arthur Weasley is heading up. Cloaks are hoax. I like this. I would like to have faith that there is an organization, whether it's governmental or non-governmental, that is out there, like, catching the the things that are being falsely advertised as protective, when in fact they're either junk or dangerous. So I'm going to say cloak. Yeah, you know, I agree. Like, I think he's dealing with people who are trying to take advantage of the very culture of fear that arguably the ministry is creating, but that's (laughs) another. Assigning horrors to Hogsmeade. I mean, okay, so now we're just talking about whether or not we think more cops are actually going to make people safer. And... Do those cops make people safer? I mean, I would say in general, cops don't. I mean, in that final battle, it's helpful to have them there, but that's not because Aurors were assigned. That's because the Order of the Phoenix shows up. The Aurors assigned to Hogsmeade have had Madame Rosmerta under the Imperius curse, under their nose for the entirety of the school year with no idea. Totally. Useless. A very, very good reminder, even in the magical world where we're not talking about solvable, solvable crime. Cops, always a hoax. Always a hoax. Students' belongings being frequently searched, plus secrecy sensors that detect jinxes, curses, and concealment charms. Cloaks are hoax. So hoax... Because it doesn't do anything. And the only instance we see where a student is trying or is going to bring something into Hogwarts um, is Katie with the cursed necklace. And she never makes it to Hogwarts with it. So, you know, even in that, that one instance where it might have caught it, it doesn't get the chance to. And it doesn't do anything to stop you know, the actual infiltration of Hogwarts with the Death Eaters at the end. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't doesn't seem to, I mean, again, does what I think a lot of these things do, which you are catching on to, which is that it deals with symptoms instead of cause. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, two more. Anti-intruder jinxes and bewitched padlocks, which we are told have been added to Hogwarts regular security. I mean, I feel 
those should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Locking the doors. Great, great plan. Just in general, like a good idea. Like the fact that book one even happens because Hermione knows the spell to unlock a door is staggering. Yeah, don't teach every 11-year-old how to pick locks. What a terrible plan. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say locks and... <laughs> in anti-intruder jinxes. Um yeah, I'm I'm going to say cloaks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Uh last up, imprisoning suspected death eaters in Azkaban without a trial. Ooh. Cloaks or hoax? Okay, so that one I'm definitely going to say is a hoax, but probably feels real convenient to the people who don't want to actually do like the death eater detection and just want to just want to deter people from pretending to be a death eater. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there does seem to be a sort of through line here of a lot of attention to looking like you're doing something useful and very little emphasis on actually like stopping the dangerous people. Yeah. So like I sort of made like a casual gesture a few examples ago to the fact that we weren't looking at like solvable crime as in as in we weren't looking at the types of crime that are prevented by providing people with secure housing and providing people with access to to substances or safe injection sites, etc. Yes and no, because I think in our last episode, we did see a little bit of how the process of radicalization operates on people like Malfoy. And that is, you know, a different kind of preventable crime. Yeah. You know, it's not It's not poverty-based crime, though, for sure. Yeah. So I I wonder if the measures that would actually be useful here would be things like not taking money from suspected death eaters, like as a ministry, right? Like like not taking campaign donations from suspected and former death eaters. Is that is (laughs) is that is that a bridge too far? Is that like too Would that be, like, too political for fudge? An outrageous suggestion that perhaps more meaningful security has to do with, like, not letting wealthy people buy their way into power. It's an absolutely outrageous claim, Marcel. <laughs> but one I think maybe we could spend a little bit more time probing, if you're ready to learn a little bit more about security theater. Break out your probity probes, Hannah. I'm ready. It's all fun and games until it's time to go back to class. Transfiguration class, that is. Which, like, let's be honest, transfiguration class is still pretty fun. It's pretty fun. When you're the teacher, Hannah. Oh, you. I always joke to my students, I can tell when they're looking at their phones because they smile in class and nothing I do would be making them smile. (laughs) Yeah, so that's going to be the tone of today's class. So, Marcel, today we are talking about security theater. So we should probably start just with understanding what exactly that term means. I love a definition. Right? So Mm -hmm. the term security theater was coined by cryptographer and computer security specialist Bruce Schneier in his 2003 book, Beyond Fear, 
thinking sensibly about security in an uncertain world. Hmm. Now, Marcel, before we get right into that, that definition, can you hazard a guess about what happened right around 2003 that might have prompted someone to write a book about fear and security and uncertainty? I would hazard a guess that it was the security responses to 9-11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like not 9-11 itself, but the measures that the government, that the U.S. government and and a bunch of the other other like major world powers implemented in the wake of 9-11. Yeah, 100%. There was such a shift in the culture of security particularly in the U.S. in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Most notably, George W. Bush created the Department of Homeland Security in 2002, which has since grown to be the third largest cabinet department. It has an annual budget of over $500 billion. Okay, one, that number is unbelievable. But two, I actually forgot that there was a time before that existed. Absolutely. That's how used to it I, I am. Anyway, sorry, what else does it do? hundred percent. So the Department of Homeland Security funds Muslim surveillance programming. Um, Le- but wait. <laughs> sorry, wait. Literally like- programs that are about surveilling people who are suspected of being Muslim extremists. That's what security, quote unquote, security against terrorism looks like. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it also consists of multiple sub-agencies, including the TSA. Uh-huh. It's the Transportation Security Administration. But also under the Department of Homeland Security is the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, often known as ICE, as well as Customs and Border Protection. So we are looking at a huge range of new forms of security that were introduced in the wake of 9-11, We're going to talk more about border security and surveillance as, you know, responses. But security theater is a term that emerges during this historical period to refer to security measures that are primarily performative in the sense that they look like they're doing a lot when they actually aren't. Totally. Okay. So the primary examples most people use when referring to security theater are the TSA's changes to airport security post 9-11. You know, that characterizes, I think, a lot of people's experiences of travel and has has not in any way meaningfully waned since those sort of early post 9-11 reactions. So security theater sort of highlights a couple of things for us. One, it points to the fact that security as a concept is both a feeling and a reality. So in part, security is about making people feel safe. Okay. And so often it has a almost ritualistic dimension. Oh, oh, yeah. That you go through these rituals that are about making you feel like the thing that you're about to do is safe, even if actually it doesn't have any impact on keeping that thing technically secure. And that's not always a bad thing, right? The Mm -hmm. rituals that we do to make the world more navigable for us are fine. They're a human tool. Sure. Yeah. They don't, they shouldn't hurt anybody. Yeah. (laughs) And then other things actually like make information secure, like encryption. Mm -hmm. You know, you can encrypt information in a way that literally makes it more secure. So security is both a real thing and a feeling. And that's where it gets really muddy around security theater. So theatrical forms of security 
really are focusing on the former, on making people feel more secure, mm-hmm. which is where we get things like taking our shoes off, full body scans, swabbing laptops. <laughs> Every, they have to swab like the baby formula and the milk too. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you swabbing? Like, what? Swab that formula, <laughs> confiscating liquids, etc. And uh, just to be clear, leaked information from the TSA has made it clear that they are fully aware these protocols are ineffective. Mm, like, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. absolutely know it's doing nothing, and they are absolutely drinking the booze that they make you leave. You know what? Good. Good. The thing that really haunts me is the bottle of Grand Marnier that I had to leave behind one time because I missed the check-in window. And anyway, yeah, I just I just really want someone to have made a few margaritas or something with it. They did. Good. For folks who, you know, maybe don't travel a ton or for whom these examples don't resonate, we saw another version of state-sanctioned theater come into play during the pandemic, which was referred to in the media as hygiene theater, which is another form of security theater. So that was the implementation of a lot of hygiene procedures that, like, weren't actually supported by scientific evidence, but that created a sense of safety by giving the impression that businesses were doing something. So that's why so many people spent so much time wiping down grocery carts to prevent the spread of an airborne virus. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the time, security theater is about focusing on the things that make it look like you're doing something either instead of doing the thing that would be useful or to distract people from the fact that you actually can't do anything useful. So would you say that security theater is by definition ineffective? Not necessarily. So it's by definition concerned with appearances over effectiveness, Mm -hmm. but it certainly does things. It certainly has impacts. So Security theater is part of a larger normalization of government actions that reduce our liberty in exchange for the feeling of security. Mm -hmm. So that's an effect that it's having. And one might argue it is, in fact, the intended effect that, in this case, the purpose of the security measures are in fact population control. And that in that sense, getting people used to giving up their own liberties in exchange for the feeling of security is the whole point. Oh, hell yeah. The number of times since 9-11, I have heard people say, well, you know, what choice do we have? We got to be safe. This is just what the world is like now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. So it's not just that so many of these like airport security measures are useless. What they actually do is give airport security more power to profile and apprehend people, generally based on appearance or name. Right. So it's easier to profile people in the context of a hyper securitized setting 
than it is if you were just letting people go and then just stopping some people. It's like, well, mm-hmm. everybody's being subjected to inexplicable security measures. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be anyone. It's random. Yes, right? You're constantly being selected for a random screening. Mm-hmm. Guys, it's not random. I don't believe it. Yeah, I know. Plus, security theater encourages us to be hyper-conscious about the appearance of things. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And that encourages us to participate in the policing of public spaces and other individuals. That's the whole, if you see something, say something anti-terrorism campaign, that the more we focus on the idea that surface appearances are evidence of security or lack of security, the more you can, like, get everybody into the fun game of participating in policing. Right, 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 right. So let me just make a note here about the concept of giving up personal liberties. So There's an interesting and somewhat troubling thing happening right now around the public discourse about liberty and safety, and that is that the concept of freedom, of personal liberty, is being really co-opted by the right right now Mm. in a way that has caused a sort of reactionary move on the part of a lot of left-wing people to say, no, actually, the correct left-wing thing to do is to unthinkingly comply with government mandates. Right. There's that binary thinking again, right? Like, oh, well, if the if the extreme right says that masks are bad, then we should do everything the government says. Yeah. And then, in fact, it becomes a liberal position to believe in, in government-implemented safety policies, whether or not you actually understand them. So I think it's it's useful to remember at this point that there is a lot of like rhetorical and ideological force behind the ideas of both safety and freedom, that mm-hmm. those are really big, powerful ideas that are really frequently taken up by bad actors mm-hmm. in order to manipulate people into doing other kinds of things. And so we can see in the example of post 9-11 security, we can see that the concept of safety was being taken up by the right wing Mm -hmm. in order to strip away the freedoms of a particular segment of the population, particularly of people who were like racialized or coded as Muslim, but that, you know, actually just impacted black and brown people across the board. And what's happening right now is that the rhetorical strategy of the right has moved away from we need to be secure mm-hmm. to we need to be free. Because freedom and security are not actually concepts that map neatly along a right-wing, left-wing binary. Yeah. Being free is not a conservative or a liberal concept. Being safe is not a conservative or a liberal concept. They are both, you know, real things with real consequences, but they're incredibly complex things that can be really taken up and used to manipulate people in a lot of contexts. And so I think it's worth noting the way that a lot of people have started to be like, no, questioning whether the vaccine is safe is now a right-wing move. And if you are a good person, you will never ask a single question about anything the government wants you to put in your body. (laughs) And it's like, well, nah, dog, that can't be it. 
that can't be the response. But that's that sort of binary and reactionary thinking that we see, you know, so frequently. And what I think I'm interested in moving us towards, particularly when we get back to the book, is thinking about, like, well, what what then do we actually do to keep one another safe? That's a good question. Okay. 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 So I wonder, because we've been, we have been focusing a lot on Canadian and American examples, which makes sense because, you know, that's our, that's our knowledge. But um, can you talk a little bit about the ways in which we have seen security theater cross the pond? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, in some ways, England is actually a real world leader on sinister security practices. Ooh, CCTV? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to talk about CCTV. <laughs> you know it. So scholars David Murakami Wood and C. William R. Webster, amazing, a double initial name, have written about the link between security theater and surveillance using the example of CCTV. Mm-hmm. So CCTV, for folks who don't know, that stands for closed circuit television. It's a video surveillance system that's extremely widespread in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that is both actively impeding on people's personal liberties, mm-hmm. because you are forced to consent to being surveilled by the government when you enter into all kinds of public spaces, and is also pretty useless at preventing crimes. So, I mean, why have them? <laughs> Great question. What's particularly interesting to to Wood and Webster in this article is that there's very little public resistance to it. Oh, interesting. Because it is a form of security theater. So here's what they write about security theater in the context of the UK. They say, Theatrical security is to be found everywhere from the airport to the high street, from the demands to remove shoes for inspection to the increasing numbers of uniformed plastic police. That's Police Community Support Officers, PCSOs in the UK, city centre and neighbourhood wardens, mall cops, private security, and so on, who look like the real police and may even have some direct connections to the police, but lack either their training or powers. They are simply symbols, performers in the security theatre, end quote. They're like literally, they're literally performers. (laughs) Yeah, they're just cosplaying as cops. They're like, they're cosplaying as cops. They're, they are as much cops as like the Spider-Man on Young and Dundas is Spider-Man. It's an actual Spider-Man. So they link CCTV to mall cops in the mm-hmm. sense that it's like, this does almost nothing. Mm-hmm. This reduces crime very little, if at all. Mm-hmm. And so their argument is that what it does is get people used to being surveilled. Totally. You know... CCTV does serve a very important role in all of the police dramas out of the UK that I enjoy watching. It's how they catch the bad guy. <laughs> but that's but that's television, not real life. One, that's television, not real life, and the entire genre of police procedurals are part of a larger sort of discursive production of narratives that teach us to trust and believe in the effectiveness of the police. That's how discourse operate. So that's part of it. But also, again, they might sometimes catch people. They don't prevent crime, which should be the goal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, incredible. So can you help me make sense of 
you know, the relationship between American security theater and British security theater, because like if Britain is the leader <laughs> in security theater, but America is the instigator, could we see this as a kind of American cultural imperialism? Or is it just like all of the paranoid world leaders like get together at a conference <laughs> and like and cook up a scheme? I mean, definitely some thinkers have suggested that in part, we're seeing sort of just that that cultural imperialism that the U.S.'s shifting relationship to security had this sort of trickle-down effect through the rest of the world. Wood and Webster argue that it's something else, specifically globalization and late capitalism, which I will explain, but I'm just wondering, Marcel, if you could give us a quick definition of late capitalism and also globalization. Absolutely. These are two terms that I always have in my back pocket and definitely did not consult the script and prepare definitions ahead of time. Yeah, no, you're just ready. I'm just ready. So I like to borrow Annie Lowry's definition of late capitalism, which you can find published in The Atlantic. <laughs> ah, this is a quote. Late capitalism in its current usage is a catch-all phrase for the indignities and absurdities of our contemporary economy with its yawning inequality and superpowered corporations and shrinking middle class. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, uh, it's a very useful term for, you know, things like feeling guilty about the fact that you uh, can't afford to buy dessert because you don't make enough money, but also you feel too guilty to take a personal day from work. That's like capitalism, baby. <laughs> I mean, it's part of it. <sighs> and then globalization, this is just a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary, but there are a lot of definitions of globalization. Um, so I'm just going to say that I like this one because I think it's very brief and it touches on, I think, the more important aspects. A lot of definitions are like, it's the world coming together to build a more integrated society. And that's nonsense. Globalization is the process by which businesses or other organizations develop international influence or start operating on an international scale. Absolutely. Thank you. So late capitalism plus globalization equals a world in which globally powerful corporations often exert power that then impacts states or even supersedes the ability of states to make decisions. And so when we see something like parallel forms of security theater emerging in the U.S. and the U.K., what we're seeing more is reactions to globalization and late capitalism that then get amplified by political events like terrorist attacks, Though one might also argue that those terrorist attacks are themselves symptoms of the imperialism of those countries, and thus that, that in order to understand securitization, we can't assume that it's a simple cause and effect, right? A bad, scary thing happened, and then all of these new security protocols were put in place, because right. it's a much larger phenomenon than that. So Wood and Webster argue that while we often assume that security and surveillance are a function of American imperialism, like they're an American thing, they're actually a global phenomenon that is linked to late capitalism because 
Global corporations are invested in normalizing the loss of personal freedoms in exchange for conveniences. Oh, my God. And a sense of safety. So we get used to giving our private information away to corporations because in exchange, we get all kinds of nice things, which in turn prepares us to give our information away to the state. Mm-hmm. Or in fact, we'll often provide an easy point of access to our information on behalf of the state because these corporations will, for the most part, give our private information away to the state should the state request that they do so. Mm-hmm. So again, to sort of bring this back into our own immediate realm a little bit, another example of this I think hits close to home for us as teachers is the rise of student surveillance mm-hmm. via the infiltration of for-profit educational technology companies into the educational sphere. So almost every university, maybe every university these days, uses what's called a learning management system. God, the new speak. <laughs> yeah. And those systems at SFU, it's called Canvas. They've got, there's lots of different systems at different universities. Those systems track student behaviors in ways that students have no control over, mm-hmm. often can't even see, and that are consistently unidirectional. So we can watch them, but they can't watch us. So You know, if I go into Canvas, I can see exactly the time students submitted every piece of work. I can see every page that they visited, how long they were on those pages. I can I can fully track every way in which they have engaged with the course. And if I wanted to use that information to punish them, I could. But even if I don't want to use it, there's been studies that show that like faculty will have bias against students who submit work closer to the deadline or submit work at like unusual working hours. Mm-hmm. Just the provision of that information tends to encourage a culture of surveillance, even if you don't intentionally mean to participate in it. Sure, that makes sense. And we've seen the rise, particularly during the pandemic, of exam proctoring systems that has extended the reach of institutional surveillance into students' homes. So like the Waterloo University in Ontario, their math department mandated that all students had to have operational webcams so that they could be on camera the entire time that they were taking their at-home exams. So There are these systems like Proctorio that are like these automated exam surveillance systems where students have to have their cameras on, and then the system automatically detects suspicious behavior. Mm -hmm. And if the system sees you behaving suspiciously, it will lock you out of your exam. I feel like I've heard about this, right? Like like math students getting locked out of their exams for looking down at their calculators, which they are allowed to use during exams. Yeah, but they're tracking your eyes. And if your eyes look away from the screen for too long, you will get shut out of your exam. And of course, because this kind of tracking and surveillance software is almost always built using white, able-bodied people, Mm -hmm. they are racist and ableist, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if you are in any way neurodivergent, if you've got, you know, if your eyes don't move the way they anticipate your eyes will, or if Mm -hmm. your skin doesn't have the contrast they want your skin to have, Mm -hmm. you get all kinds of false positives. Totally. In addition to just sucking, they also train students to expect and consent to surveillance in the name of security. So, Again, there's no evidence that proctoring software improves learning outcomes, but what it 
does do is help to interpolate more well-disciplined subjects for the late capitalist surveillance state. (sighs) So it's important to remember that when the state trains us to consent to surveillance and to surveil one another, it's not just to make us as productive as possible. Though certainly that's in the interest of late capitalism to make us as productive as possible. Mm -hmm. It's also a form of population control that allows for the literal control of those who the state deems undesirable. Of course. Right? So we can't forget that ICE is part of Homeland Security, that this culture of tracking and surveilling has these, like, insidious ideological impacts on those of us who are relatively privileged, but have significantly more terrifying impacts on people who lack the kind of privilege we do. Right. It's like middle-class white people who say things like, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. Precisely. So at its most extreme, security theater is the public face of a deeply violent system that does terrible things to people in the name of usually of keeping the nation safe. So it's not a coincidence that the TSA and ICE are part of the same department in the U.S. government, meaning that we can completely non-hysterically draw lines between the incarceration of children at the border and the surveillance of people in airports. Like, that's not some wild conspiracy theory. They're just literally the same department. Mm-hmm. And this security has, across the board, you know, in, the, in Canada, in the U.S., in the U.K., In Australia, in most white-dominant Western nations, this security has been becoming increasingly militarized Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. So what we are also seeing is that techniques and technologies created during military incursions are then brought back into the domestic context as a way of policing citizens. Is the increasing militarization of police, like, a part of that? Yes, absolutely. So the argument continues to be that people have to give up their rights in exchange for safety. And relatedly, that if you're not doing anything wrong, then surveillance and militarization are not a problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where you get people saying, like, yeah, okay, it's bad that people are being incarcerated at the border, but... They were trying to cross the border illegally. Mm-hmm. Because borders are real, even though they're not. So borders are not real. They're imaginative constructions that for the most part are upheld these days by literal policing of those borders. But if we think back to our conversation about the nation state, mm-hmm. right, part of understanding that it is both limited and sovereign is that we all collaboratively consent to imagining a thing called a border and pretending that that thing is a real thing. Whenever I start to take borders a little bit too seriously or think of them too preciously, I like to remind myself no borders on stolen land or no one is illegal on stolen land, which I think is a really helpful reminder that these borders were drawn up without the largely without the consent of the people who were here. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the North American context, these borders are the arbitrary creation of colonial powers. You know, in Europe, there's different histories behind those borders. And yet the basic, you know, we we say in Canada a lot, 
no one is illegal on stolen land. But that, on a more global context, the phrase, no one is illegal, is a reminder to us of the way that we take these constructs, like citizenship, like borders, mm-hmm. and we let them become so pow- so ideologically powerful to us that that we will start to say something like that person is illegal, mm-hmm. which is not how people work. A person can't be illegal. Right. That is a, a logical absurdity. You know, Hannah, it has just occurred to me, or I have just remembered, rather, that Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was published in 2005. So that means that it would have been like written and edited and revised in the days immediately following 9-11. Do you think that might have had any impact on the way the text imagines security and security theater? Yeah, Marcel, I think it might have. And I also think that was an excellent segue. (gasps) Thank you for writing it for me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay, okay. There were no games in that last section, but we're about to play our favorite game of all, (gasps) paying careful attention to textual evidence, (laughs) also known as owls. I love this game. (laughs) Since we've already sort of looked at a high level at the actual security theater stuff that Scrimgeour is doing... I want to think more about how this book contrasts Scrimgeour and Dumbledore and implicitly seems to set up Scrimgeour's political changes as things that are for show and Dumbledore's actions as things that are actually helpful. And that's a sort of binary that I, I think is useful to interrogate a bit more. But it's it's set up relatively early when Dumbledore asks Harry if Harry found the ministry leaflet on security useful, and when Harry says no, Dumbledore says, no, I thought not. You have not asked me, for instance, what is my favorite flavor of jam, to check that I am indeed Professor Dumbledore and not an <laughs> imposter. I also love the idea that, like, that would be the question that Harry would ask. I mean, obviously, Dumbledore wants all of his security to be <laughs> treat-based. Exactly. He loves a sweet treat. (laughs) Shit, we haven't even talked about the fact that, like, he changes the password to his goddamn gargoyle and you have to guess what sweet it is when you need to see the headmaster. That's not good pedagogy. Sorry, that's a different episode. I mean, folks, if you are interested in more conversations about passwords and their connection to digital security, there is an excellent Patreon bonus interview where we take a deep dive into this with an actual security expert. Oh, hell yeah. So please don't ask me to pretend to know a single thing about how computers work, (laughs) because I don't. So it seems pretty clear in that scene that Dumbledore is sort of like, yeah, Harry, you and I know these are silly precautions. Definitely. And yet he does tell the students to abide by all of the new security restrictions and not to be out of bed after hours and to report anything strange they see within the castle. Mm -hmm. So what do you make of that? Why is Dumbledore, like, winking at Harry and being like, well, we know these are nonsense, and then stands up in front of all of his students and is like, follow the rules. I want to say that that's, like, a very classic neoliberal 
kind of leftist position where it's like, I know that this is wrong, but we're going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like leaked information from the TSA tells us that the TSA knows that these measures are largely ineffectual, but they do it anyway. And so I feel like in this instance, Dumbledore is 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 the the staff person at the TSA who is leaking the information that he knows it doesn't do anything, but we're going to do it anyway. I'm sorry, the baby is singing, but it's quite cute. I love his little songs. They're so cute. My God. So, yes, absolutely. And I feel like there is sort of an implication there that's like, well, it's security theater, and the children must also be treated to a performance of security theater (laughs) so that, you know, for the same reason, because it will make them feel safe, because they'll report back to their parents, because there's a risk that Hogwarts will get shut down if people don't feel that it's safe enough. So in part, the security theater is for the parents so that they will continue to send their kids to the school. And so I think we see Dumbledore playing this game, right? Recognizing that these are ineffectual in terms of actually doing anything about Voldemort, while simultaneously understanding that, like, you got to play the game if you want to keep your school open. Mm-hmm. It's probably important for Dumbledore to play the game, considering he hasn't come up with any alternatives, any better alternatives to security himself, other than just, like, being alive at the school. (laughs) When Harry and Ron and Hermione, I think, are talking to Seamus and Dean, and Seamus is like, yeah, me mom didn't want me to come back to school. I'm not doing an Irish accent. I'm just saying what he says. And Ron is like, but Dumbledore's here. This is the safest place to be. Which is like, your only security measure is Dumbledore, who, as Hermione, I think, points out, is constantly leaving. Constantly leaving. So, like, Dumbledore's alternative to security theater is just a poster for a security performance, but no actual performance. Just just, <laughs> just the poster. The posters of himself put around the school <laughs> that say, like, Dumbledore's watching. <laughs> Dumbledore's watching. New sticker. Yeah, that's our next sticker. <laughs> Dumbledore's watching just surveillance stickers. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> it's a neighborhood watch, but it's just Dumbledore watch. <laughs> and he gets so mad at Harry when Harry's like, but you leave all the time. Dumbledore's like, how dare you imply that I don't constantly know everything that's happening in my own school. Mm-hmm. So Dumbledore is actually saying, no, don't worry. I am surveilling everyone constantly. Things only happen when I have consented to them. Yeah. Which is also not a great model of security. No. No, it's not ideal. And it is very much like, so on the one hand, we've got the sort of like post 9-11 security state being exemplified in Scrimgeour and his decisions. And I I know we're not interested in authorial intentions, but I would say that that is a deliberate invocation. Like, I think that that's the the sort of intertext that is at play in the way that Scrimgeour is being positioned. Um, And then on the other hand, we've got Dumbledore as this figure who is saying, you will be completely safe with me because I am completely powerful. Which is just kind of like a patriarchal model of security. 
which is like, don't I dare worry say about it. Hannah. Daddy says here. you're safe. <laughs> don't worry about it. Daddy says you're safe. Daddy says you're safe. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So taken to the extreme, these two different approaches do seem to have two different outcomes. So like Scrimger's approach taken to the extreme is Stan Shunpike imprisoned for being a Death Eater. And then Dumbledore is taken to the extreme is Dumbledore is himself appealing to the minister because he's decided that Stan is okay. <laughs> we have no textual evidence that Stan Shunpike isn't a Death Eater. All we have is Harry being like, he seemed okay to me. And Dumbledore yeah. being like, <laughs> I'm talking to the minister about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, so Mr. Weasley says... Anybody who's actually interviewed him agrees he's about as much a Death Eater as the Setsuma. Mm-hmm. He says it at Christmas. He's holding a Setsuma. Mm-hmm. And then explicitly says, but the top levels want to look as though they're making some progress. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we do have textual evidence that he's not a Death Eater. That's our textual evidence. It's reported by somebody, but it's reported by somebody, you know, Arthur Weasley is generally a pretty reliable... I just need to remind everybody about how Mad-Eye Moody was a Death Eater... For the entire fourth book. That's such a good point. <laughs> and also, Madame Rosmerta is under the Imperius curse, curse through the whole book. So they suck at this. They're so bad at it. Like, They're so sure, bad at they this. They interviewed him. What did, what did they ask him? Like, are you a Death Eater? And he was like, no. And they were like, see? And Dumbledore is like, how dare you ever for even a second question me? but does let Harry almost get killed by a Death Eater (laughs) and one of his actual students get murdered like two years previously. But he's outraged at the suggestion that his personal take on things isn't a perfect system of security. And he's like, what? <laughs> Binding magical contract. Can't do anything about it. But I didn't put my name in there. I don't know who did, but... Nothing I can do. Absolutely nothing I can what do. Holy shit. I mean, I think the extreme of Dumbledore's version of security is his confrontation with Draco mm. on the tower. Right? Like, his version is... A kind of like, he has known that this thing is happening the entire time. He has known about all of Draco's attempts. It does seem that thus, knowing about the attempts, he did allow, for example, Katie Bell to become cursed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe not deliberately, but like he knew Draco was doing dangerous things and he didn't do anything to stop Draco. And so he did make... A decision that basically some threat to his students was an acceptable alternative. Yeah. And we can do, we can say the same about the bottle of mead that Slughorn got, which then poisoned Ron. Yeah, absolutely. Like Dumbledore is playing the same kind of game that Scrimger is playing in the sense that he's like, I get to decide what is acceptable risk. I get to decide who has how many freedoms. But 
I think that the text is trying to tell us that Dumbledore's strategy is good and Scrimgeour's is bad. Is that is it because Scrimgeour's strategy relies on scapegoats and Dumbledore's doesn't? Maybe. But I think a big part of it is that it's that Scrimgeour's strategy is security theater. Mm-hmm. And that security theater is a thing that this book is like, that sucks. We can all agree that security theater sucks. It's oh, not real. Okay, okay, okay. So so the book is setting up a dichotomy of Yes, life is dangerous and sometimes people get hurt, but security theater doesn't solve that problem. Okay, I'm with you. I gotcha. And so the question I want to ask you is if the security theater put in place by the ministry doesn't actually help keep people safe, Mm -hmm. what do we see in this book that does help keep people safe? This is a great question. I would say that this book shows us that teaching students how to do magic, teaching students how to brew potions and antidotes in a way, like teaching them in a way that makes sense to them, that's one of the best ways to empower students to keep each other and themselves safe. Yeah. Education is huge. Education and like critical education Mm -hmm. that empowers students to have agency and to make decisions for themselves instead of always waiting for an adult to tell them they're allowed to do a thing. Yeah. And I want to say like accessible education. Like I don't think that we're supposed to read Harry as having a learning disability, but what I think that the Half-Blood Prince What I think his annotations in the potions book show us is that, like, Harry is quite good at potions when he is is being taught in a way that makes sense to him. And I feel like once we stop thinking that there's, like, a one-size-fits-all approach to pedagogy and, and, and instruction, that, like, all of a sudden then we're not looking at there are people with learning disabilities and people without. It's just like, well, what ways do you learn best? And, like, tailoring lessons to people's unique learning styles, etc. Some folks on Twitter have been pointing out that, in fact, we have plenty of evidence that Snape has been using his, like, Half-Blood Prince skills in how he teaches potions because he doesn't use textbooks. He writes down the instructions on the board. Oh, shit. Consistently, he writes down the instructions on the board. And so the issue isn't that Harry has not had access to the excellent instructions that Snape provides. The issue is that Harry can't learn well in a classroom with Snape because Snape is constantly emotionally abusing him. But that's why Hermione was so good at potions up until Slughorn takes over and starts using the textbook that sucks. Wow. Wow, our listeners are so good at reading text. Our listeners are extremely smart. But that does, you know, I, I keep thinking back to those those moments in Defense Against the Dark Arts when Snape is saying, like, what you have to do is not just, like, learn things out of a book. You have to be ready to act. You mm-hmm. have to be flexible and creative. You have mm-hmm. to know how to take this knowledge and apply it. Mm-hmm. And so... There's a lot going on there in terms of like, you can't just be handed a set of rules and then say, follow these rules and your life will work out in the following way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if we've got one moment that is people actually gathering together to make themselves and their community safe, 
it's the attack on Hogwarts. That's right. Yeah. And in that moment, it's, you know, Dumbledore's army and the Order of the Phoenix, for the most part, coming together using a wide range of strategies and skills, but primarily being effective because they are working together, are sharing resources, are pooling their abilities. You know, Harry has given the rest of his... Oh, his Felix Felicis. (laughs) Yeah, he gave the rest of that to Ron and Hermione. So what actually works in that moment has a lot more to do with people wanting to take care of each other and figuring out in that moment what are the strategies that we need that are going to help us take care of each other. And it doesn't really seem like in that moment either Scrimgeour or Dumbledore's approaches are what are helpful. Because Dumbledore didn't prepare the students for an attack. No, not at all. He also wasn't, he didn't follow up Dumbledore's army with like, that was a great idea, folks. Let's have regular, like, like extracurricular learning activities to work on your skills. <laughs> I just got this one child soldier to train. I'm just going to really focus. I'm just going to really focus in on him. Oy, oy, oy. Okay. So I am, you know, I'm trying to trying to think about, again, you know, and listeners at this point will be really familiar with like this way that I like to read, which is like maybe at one point we need to do an episode just on the concept of reading against the grain. Like that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty fundamental piece of how I read that maybe we haven't actually like talked about overtly yet. But like, you know, a thing I love to do is like, figure out, you know, what is the book arguing? What is the book, what does it seem like the book is trying to say? And then what are the little insidious other possibilities that are emerging if we read against the grain of what the book is trying to say to us? Mm -hmm. You know? So I think when we read with the grain of the book, what the book is saying is that security theater is useless and that what instead we need is a small number of remarkable people to step up and make everyone safe through their remarkable actions. Yes, I would agree with that. Which is a kind of fascist idea, Mm. right? That there's just some people who are better suited to being in power, and that if we give them power, they will keep us safe. Yeah, that is also, you know, what Voldemort wants to do. Yeah, and we've, you know, we talked about this in the last episode, you know, Voldemort and Dumbledore both having kind of fascist-ish. Just a little fashy. Just a little fashy. But I do think that there is kind of this, this... If you read against the grain, this other model of what it looks like to keep each other safe in a world where an actually very dangerous thing is happening, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's not, you know, the state constructing a false sense of danger in order to control people. Mm -hmm. Like an actually very dangerous thing is happening. And actually people really do need to be keeping themselves and each other safe right now. Yeah. 
Yeah. So how do they do that? Well, how they actually do it is not by trusting that the state is going to protect them, mm-hmm. which minoritized populations always know. You don't mm-hmm. trust the state to protect you. And it's not by giving up their agency to a single powerful person who says, mm-hmm. don't ask any questions, don't resist me in any way, just do what I say. Mm-hmm. It's through collaboration, community organization, mutual aid. Mm-hmm sharing resources, looking out for each other. And that's what we see them doing when push actually comes to shove. Like, it's what actually works. I think you're totally right. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, at the beginning of this episode, we were talking about the pandemic and we were talking about hygiene theater. And I think that we also saw a lot of that in practice with the pandemic, right? With, like, the ways in which we would come together as communities to take care of each other. And like when somebody was uh, in quarantine or isolating, like people, like friends and neighbors, like bringing things to their house and dropping them off. And, And we wear masks not to protect ourselves because masks are actually not that effective for protecting yourself. But gosh, they are very effective at protecting others. Yeah, right. We we show up for each other. And we take care of each other. And that doesn't actually need a government pamphlet or a very powerful wizard, (laughs) turns out. Dang. Yeah. Dang. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch, Please. Which Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes by visiting the podcast section of the Wilfrid Laurier University Press website, or, as always, on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you want to hang out with us some more, we are on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease, and you'll notice all the hot new content thanks to our Witch Please apprentice and social media wizard, Zoe Mix. Thanks, Zoe. Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Sorry, Coach. Thanks, Coach. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Do you wish that you had access to exclusive stickers that could somehow communicate to the world that you like Harry Potter, but like in a really complex and nuanced way? Mm. Of course you do. Head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease and check out our prefix tier to join the sticker club in becoming a Patreon supporter at any level. You'll be helping us inch closer to our goal of having 1,000 supporters by May 25th, which is my birthday. (gasps) Hannah's birthday! This is what I want for my birthday. (laughs) Just saying. More support also means more perks and more financial sustainability for the show and our small but mighty team. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. No one else. No one else but Nicole!
and SMO the fourth. I think I'm not sure if Cohen is laughing. I think Cohen really likes those usernames. <laughs> we'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. But until then, later, witches. <laughs> <laughs>